Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I'm so glad you are here with me today. I am Liz. I'm joining you from Central Virginia and the unceded lands of the Monacan Nation. And I am so excited about today's conversation. But first, I want to give you a couple of quick announcements slash reminders. Um, My book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine, is available now from Womancraft Publishing. This book reflects my own exploration of sacred feminine wisdom, both from a historical perspective, as well as my lived experiences and a lot of the insights that I have received from my guests on this show. So if you're interested in reading it, I would love for you to support my publisher, Womancraft Publishing, by buying it from them directly. This is a small woman-owned business, an amazing business. Um, Or you can support your local bookstore and order it there, or you can order it on bookshop.org, which shares their proceeds with local and independent bookstores. And if you've read it and you've enjoyed it, I would be so grateful if you would consider leaving it a review on Amazon or on Goodreads, which um, really helps other people find it. And if you've read it and you want to share your reflections with me, please do so. I love hearing from you. You can find me on Instagram at Home to Her. I also have a Facebook group also called Home to Her, where we're talking about the sacred feminine all the time. So if that platform appeals to you, jump on in there. And then finally, if you're listening to the show and you like it, I would also be so grateful for your reviews. Um, iTunes reviews in particular help other people find the show. And given that this is a homegrown podcast on a niche subject, I can tell you that your reviews can and do make a huge difference. Um, I'm starting my fourth year of hosting the show. It's pretty great. And uh, this podcast is now in the top two, 5% of all podcasts globally, which is pretty cool and would not have happened without your support and help spreading the word. So thank you. For those of you who have already given it reviews, thank you. And if you haven't done so, and it would be in your joy to do so, I would be most grateful. All right. And now let's get on with it, shall we? So to begin, I want to share some words with you that were written by my guest who's joining us today. And this is what she says. I speak now about our time, the 21st century, as the Sophia century, the term Sophia referring to the wisdom of the feminine. The 20th century was dominated by war and the fear of war for 100 years. Now, at the beginning of the third millennium, is the time for the feminine to rise, for both women and men to find the full expression of their yin energy to balance the overbearing yang of the patriarchy. And I feel those words so deeply, and I would imagine if you're listening to this, that you feel them too. I mean, this awareness is really the reason for me hosting this show. And one of my favorite things about my guest today is that these aren't just words to her. She has spent her entire life in service, and she translates this awareness into direct action. And this feels so important because I think when we become aware of what I call the sacred feminine, we might still want to engage with her or translate her through the lens of individualism or capitalist patriarchy which is understandable, right? I mean, this is the this is the soup that we are in. But we might think, well, what can I buy to help me connect with her to evolve and grow? What do I need outside of myself? Whose expert program can I sign up for? And 
truly there's nothing wrong with any of that. And in some ways, all that's been part of my process. I would just say that for me, the longer I seek to understand the suppressed wisdom of the feminine, the more clear it is to me that this is so much larger than any one of us. It is about how we show up in the world and what we're offering the world in large and small ways that can help us bring this balance, not just to ourselves, but to our communities and our broader culture. So I know our guests will have plenty to say about this and much more. So let's, let me introduce her to you. Lynn Twist is the founder of the Soul of Money Institute and author of the best-selling award-winning book, The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life, as well as a new book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. Over the past 40 years, Lynn has worked with over 100,000 people in 50 countries in the arenas of fundraising with integrity, conscious philanthropy, strategic visioning, and having a healthy relationship with money. She is presented for the United Nations Beijing Women's Conference State of the World Forum, Synthesis Dialogues with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and the Governor's Conference on California Women, among others. A recognized global visionary, Lynn has been an advisor to the Desmond Tutu Foundation and the Nobel Women's Initiative. She is the recipient of numerous prestigious honors, including the Woman of Distinction Award from the United Nations. She is co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance and serves on a number of nonprofit boards, including the Fetzer Institute, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Bioneers, Conscious Capitalism, and Women's Earth Alliance. Whew! <laughs> and she is joining us from her home today in the Bay Area of California. Lynn, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you with me today. Thank you so much, Liz. It's great to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I usually like to start these conversations with getting a little bit of a background from people on their spiritual upbringing. I find this interesting for a couple of reasons. And one is that, you know, because this is a show on the sacred feminine, that kind of leads into the discussion of how we become aware of this aspect of the divine that we we may or may not experience in female form, but I'd love to hear a little bit on what your spiritual background was and kind of how that shaped you growing up. Um, well, you know, there's a, a distinction that I now make between spiritual and religious, but when I was a child, I didn't have that distinction and I was, um, raised as a Catholic. And so, um, for me, the, the kind of spiritual aspect of my life was this thing called religion and um, although it was more like a gesture or a set of protocols um, in many ways, you know, I didn't really understand. There were things that I didn't understand about the Catholic faith. And that I, I actually sort of internally as a child argued with, hmm. particularly when I couldn't go see my best friend, Lizzie Lee, perform in her Christmas pageant, because at that time, a Catholic was not supposed to go to another church that wasn't a Catholic church. And I thought that is the weirdest thing. I mean, God doesn't want me to go see my friend Lizzie Lee in her Christmas pageant. <laughs> it sounds so silly, but it, it really did shake my, it, it made me really think, wait a minute, that's a kind of silly rule. God yeah. wouldn't want to do that. So I started to question the religious um, roots that I had really young. I think I think I might have been eight or nine. Hmm. Uh, but the spiritual part of Catholicism, you know, the the beauty of connecting with something larger than myself, this kind of unseen knowing that there's something bigger, something mystical and beautiful and awesome that brought this universe into existence 
was always there. I think it's there for every child. Mm -hmm. And then um, after my father died, which happened when I was a young adolescent in my teens, I, uh, I became very, very religious, almost out of reaction to the loss of my dad and thinking that somehow it must have been my fault. And, um, and it was then that I really developed my own inner life, I would say. You know, the inner life of a child is, is sort of imagination, but the inner life of an adolescent, you're struggling with, you know, your, your place in the world. So um, having a, that kind of an inner life that where, where there was some guidance, and it was Catholic guidance, actually. It was nuns and, and people that were in the faith, but somehow they were teaching me about my spirituality, about my soul. Um, so I would say that was really seminal. And then I took the EST training, which is not a spiritual program at all. It's an ontological program. It's now called the Landmark Forum. And that was a huge deal for me. I um, I freed myself from beliefs and um, kind of what I call life sentences, life mm -hmm. sentences like little prisons in my mind uh, about who I was or who I wasn't in the S training, that was the purpose of it in many ways is to find some liberation and find out who you really are. And that was just huge for me. I, I, I can't say enough about how grateful I am for the S training. And then I got involved in ending world hunger, which, which is a cause you could say, or a mission or an initiative. But really for me, it was a spiritual path, really working on one of the biggest global issues that we face as a human community and learning about the human spirit from people living in abject poverty, from people living in war, from people living in um, in conditions of hunger and starvation, losing their own children to starvation. You, you find the deep, profound human spirit that's at the heart of everything mm -hmm. uh, out of being proximate to suffering and tragedy. And then, of course, that led me to work, work with Mother Teresa. And you can't find a more spiritual <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, a better spiritual teacher than Mother Teresa was, although she was also Catholic and religious. Her spirit, her her uh, capacity to love and see Christ in every every face, uh, was a huge, huge influence on my life. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my highlights. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm very fortunate to have. Um, a lot of people accompany me on, on my own spiritual path. And now Indigenous Peoples of the Amazon uh, give me another dimension or angle on spirituality, because I think spirituality comes in many, 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 many languages, many forms, many different ways. Um, and the current way that I'm learning is from not only Indigenous people, but the natural world mm -hmm. and the spirit of life. So, uh, and from the great mother, the earth herself. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, um, that kind of leads me to this next question. And, and if it's, I'd like us to shape it or you to shape it in a way that makes it relevant to you. But I, um, I do like to hear from people what I call it the sacred feminine. You may use different language that may not resonate with you at all, but if there was a particular point in time where you feel like you became aware of, I guess, either the absence or the presence of this, um, a feminine divine nature and and if so what what was that turning point for you and i guess the second part to that would be if that language doesn't work for you or make sense or resonate with you what might you say instead 
Um, well, absolutely, totally resonates with me. First mm-hmm. of all, sacred feminine. I also use the term divine feminine, as you yeah. probably do too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when did it start occurring to me? Well, I'll I'll just say probably when I look back, my greatest, some of my greatest teachers have been women who I think are deeply connected to that. So that's a retrospective view. Um, Sister Benjamin uh, was a nun who helped me when my father died uh, to to deal with that loss. Um, In the EST training, I had a male teacher, um, but I also became very close to some of the leaders of the EST movement that were really strong female women that I just adored and respected and um, became almost students of. Mm. Um, And then when the Hunger Project began, it became clear to to all of us working at the Hunger Project and really working on ending world hunger, which was and still is the goal of the Hunger Project, that the key intervention for the eradication of hunger and poverty is the empowerment of women and girls. And that was a revelation at the time in the in the, in the 70s, 80s and 90s in the last century most people wouldn't have said that. Now it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious then and the Hunger Project was one of the first organizations on earth really to name that there was no more powerful intervention for ending world hunger and having people become self-reliant and self-sufficient than having women and girls be educated, literate, have access to credit and have their voices heard in a community, in a village, in a country, Mm -hmm. uh, all over sub-Saharan Africa. That's clearly the way through and every major organization working uh, on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa will say that now in India, this massive hunger issue in India, uh, it became clear that the freeing of women from the bondage of bride burning and uh, dowry and um, uh, female infanticide and the horrible things that were happening to women and girls in India, that freedom from that kind of bondage uh, was a key to ending hunger and poverty in India. Also Bangladesh, also Pakistan, also Sri Lanka, also Nepal. Mm-hmm. So we started to <clears throat> uncover that the oppression and suppression of feminine voices of w- women and girls and having giving them no access uh, creates an environment where hunger and poverty prevail and and violence. Uh, and so it became so obvious. I mean, it's just incredible now how obvious it is that um, that women and girls and the voices of the feminine are not only needed, but uh, um, that's the emergent pro- uh, property is the wrong word. Let me think. Emergent energy vibration that that needs to come through now to address literally everything. And Paul Hawken, the great environmental teacher and writer and ecologist, has identified the top 100 solutions to reversing the climate crisis, the whole climate crisis, the biggest challenge we have. And um, he he ranks them, you know, number one, yes. number two, number three. Um, and in, in conversation with Paul, 
he ranks uh, education of girls and the liberation of, of, of the voice of the feminine as six and seven. But if you combine them, they become number one for reversing the climate crisis. Yes. So, and he writes about that in Drawdown, right? I remember yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. So the ending hunger, the empowerment of women and girls, ending poverty, the empowerment of women and girls, uh, turning around the climate crisis, the empowerment of women and girls. I think we know in our own democracy, the voices of women, particularly in the United States, will turn our democracy from a we the money and dominion and domination over everything and everyone. Uh, the voices of women will transform our democratic breakdown. Um, and also, uh, obviously, in peace, when women are at the peace table, the talks of war, it's just so obvious that women, the voices of women, which is one way of talking about it, but really what that is, is a secular way of talking about the divine feminine, mm-hmm. the sacred feminine, that is the energy that's coming through now in the Sophia century, as you read in the in the book, um, and is as we say in the in the book also that this first century of the third millennium is starting off with this 22, 23 years, lots of turmoil, lots of chaos. But you might say that it's all breaking down and breaking apart, like dissolving in a, a breakdown that's painful. And yes, very, very challenging, the health breakdown with the COVID virus, the the breakdown of our democracy, the breakdown of our economy, the breakdown of our education system, the breakdown of really all religions in many ways, not serving us, is a healthy dissolution of patriarchal systems that are coming from a place of dominance and dominion, even religion, using the word dominion, uh, comes from religious, um, so that the divine feminine which is the next emergent energy for the human family can come through. And mm-hmm. um, and we can give birth, which is our job and our, our both biological and anatomical and spiritual job. Some women don't actually have children, but all women give birth uh, in many ways is what's wanted and needed. We need to reborn as a new kind of human being. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I have seen this in so many dimensions, but it really began with ending world hunger. That's where it started to show up. And when I look back, even before that, um, I can see that that you know the influence of one's mother. In my case, my mother was simply extraordinary. And um, uh, she was a huge beacon of love and light for everyone who knew her. And she was a, you know, she was a civic leader. She, today she would be called an activist. We, we didn't use those terms then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge influence on my life. So I, I and my father too, but if my, my father passed and my mother just took up the mantle of raising us without him, uh, he he died when he was fifty, so and she was forty six. So it, it, he died very young, and she had four kids, and her mother lived with us. So she she had a huge responsibility. Um, and this is before there were as many single moms as there are now. Now 
women all over the world, but particularly in the United States, you know, single moms are half our population. Uh, so women are just awesome, awesome, awesome. When I think about single moms during COVID, working full-time jobs, sometimes two, three full-time jobs, and their kids at home on Zoom, I just, I, I don't even, I don't even know how they did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just amazing. So the strength, the resilience, power, and capacity to love and include and gather and the strength of women is unfathomable without the divine feminine because it's logistically impossible for us to do everything we do. Logistically impossible. You can't work full-time, educate your kids full-time, raise them full-time. You can't do that without the divine feminine. So the divine feminine, the sacred feminine energy that's coming through us makes us into a capacity that's almost unfathomable and it's challenging and beautiful and inspiring and difficult and hard and unfair and, um, and crushing and, and yet we do it. So I, I think I've always known it, but it became very, very clear for me during the early days of the hunger project Mm -hmm. uh, in the seventies, late seventies, early Mm eighties. So a long time ago. Yeah. Well, and I, you said, you know, you're kind of putting it in your words were secular terms. And I would also say really practical terms. Like I I'm thinking of, um, I've talked to many people on the show who come at this from many different angles, and we really can get to a very philosophical place of different spiritual traditions and how do they understand the divine feminine. And I, I love all that, right. I'll, I'll, I'll geek out on all of it. But what I love about what you said is that, um, you bring it into the realm of where we are right now. And which is also beautiful because to me, it underscores that there is no, there's no real separation, right? We are an expression of the divine feminine ourselves. And so of course you would see this, we can, we can take it in the philosophical place and in the esoteric realms, but we can anchor it right down in our bodies and in what we see happening around us every day. And I think that's super important because it gets us into the realm of, um, well, then we're actors and we are, we can become activists, which is exactly what you have done with your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I call myself a pro-activist actually. Yes, I love that. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm an activist for not against. Yes. And I see the things that uh, we need to dismantle and, and, and dissolve but I'm not into attacking them or killing them. I'm into hospicing their natural death because they're un- unsustainable. So, um, yeah. So yes. And, and, but I'm, I'm in the trenches, you know, as an activist um, uh, word implies and proactivist and I'm in the trenches in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yes. And that makes me think of something that you wrote about in your most recent book, living a committed life, where you talk about, the difference between, um, this isn't exactly what you said, but this is what came up. So we're going to go there, I think. But you talked about the difference between taking a, a stand mm-hmm. versus taking a position. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and what you see as the difference between those two things. Um, yes. Well, uh, positionality, this is a, a way of looking at this. Positionality uh, creates its oppositionality. So if I say right, it really creates left. If I say up, it creates down. If I say here, it creates there. Positionality has that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so if I say, um, 
progressive, it creates conservative. If I can say conservative, it creates progressive. You know, that, that this kind of positionality is in our very much in our culture. Yeah. Um, if I say pro-life, it creates pro- pro-choice. And the deeper and uh, the more entrenched the pro-life position is, the more entrenched the pro-choice position will become. That that that's the way the thing works, you know, kind of that's the the energy. And then another way of talking about position is it's a point of view. And if you think of this term point of view, it's not just a point of view opinion, it's a point from which you view the world. So you view the world as a woman or a man or a African-American or a person of wealth or a person of privilege or a person of of um, of uh, marginalized means, et cetera. So we have our point of view is from whence we view the world. It's also almost geographic. So, you know, there's the point of view of a room. If you're sitting in the corner of a room, you see the room in a certain way. If you're sitting in the middle of the room, you see the room in another way. Yeah. Um, and both points of view are 100% accurate for the person who has that point of view. It's 100% the truth for them. Um, but sometimes we think our point of view or our position, you could say, is the truth for everyone. And that's when we get into trouble. We can't listen to another point of view. We can't We don't, can't agree with it because our point of view is different or our position is different. So you could see in, in our you know political landscape, there's all this arguing and these all these different points of view. Um, but I I think positions are important and points of view are important. Um, I'm not saying they're wrong or bad. They're just they have a dynamic that 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 is 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 sometimes quite challenging and um and also very useful. Uh taking a stand is a whole different thing. And that's why pause before I talk about it, because it has in it this completely different domain. So when you take a stand like Martin Luther King did, like Mahatma Gandhi did, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony did, like Jane Goodall has, like Maya Angelou's has, did, like um, Oprah has, you know, uh, people that we truly admire that sort of go down in history as true game changers. They're people who, it's not that they didn't have a position or a point of view, but they relinquish that and live from a stand, which is almost like going up 30,000 feet and looking down and seeing all the different positions or points of view on the game board and seeing that they're all valid. They all inform, they all make a difference. And a stand um, is something that Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. And you can. These are people who did move the world. And when you take a stand, you relinquish your point of view. You let it go. You're down here in one of these points of view. If you, you know, kind of the metaphor of going up 30,000 feet. Um, You relinquish your point of view. And what you gain is vision. Instead of a point of view, you have vision. In other words, you can see it all. Mm-hmm. You have a vision is is both a, a verb and a noun. So when you have vision, you have the capacity to see it all, the whole, and you see the vision of the whole and you see 
what wants to happen. That's the vision. So uh, taking a stand has a, a, a huge impact on a person's life. And it takes a lot of courage to take a stand because once you take it, you become that. You don't, um, and people start to relate to you for what you're standing for rather than your personality or your identity or your points of view. And that's a good thing, I think. I mean, I think it's helpful. Um, so a, a stand is always for, and it's not something you can actually ever take credit for. You can't check it off. You can't say, okay, I did that. That's my accomplishment. No, it's the, it's a direction that you are calling into being for the human journey. So it might be, I stand for social justice for all children, or it might be, I stand for giving everybody in the world, wherever I can access uh, and connecting them with beauty. Or it might be, I stand for giving and receiving love in every interaction, or I stand for every child having someone who, um, who sees them and mirrors back to them their greatness or I stand for it like that. So big, beautiful um, visions for the world that you live in communion with that stand and it informs the very fabric of your life. And that's different than a position. And it doesn't mean that Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi didn't have positions for and against stuff but they lived from their stand and then they would drop into positionality to accomplish things and to, you know, exercise their moral courage. Um, but a stand is really almost like a holy place from which you live your life. And um, I recommend it. And I think mm -hmm. everyone has one, but they just don't know it. And uh, one of the things that I love to do is help people uncover that for themselves. Because we have such a challenging, epic time that we're living in that I think if you're born today, if you're alive today, if you're inhabiting this world now, you have a role to play. And it's not a big role or a small role. It's just your role. And if you can discover what it is and play it with all your heart, uh, you have a life of meaning, purpose, joy, freedom, and fulfillment. And that's a, a committed life. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, um, I wanted to share a couple of things that came up as you were saying that. One, when I think of positions, um, I know, and I'd, I'd be curious, Lynn, your response to this, but I know for me, <laughs> one of the things that's happened for me in working with what I call sacred feminine energy is that anywhere that I might be getting too entrenched or, ah, I have figured it out. This is the truth. This is the way that it is. It is almost a guarantee that, and I call her, she, you know, you call her whoever you want, source or God or whatever. She is going to come along and just yank the rug right out from under me and be like, wait a minute. What about this? Mm. Can you see it from this? So to me, being able to move your perspective on we call it the checkerboard of life, perhaps, you know, and see from those different places that feels divinely, divine feminine inspired, or at least it has been in my life much more so than let's say I was raised in a Southern Baptist household. I didn't get that perspective of the God that I had in that world, you know, but I feel like that's been something that the sacred feminine has given me that ability 
to shift lenses. And I think part of it is, and you talk about this too, um, but this idea that all of life is sacred, which is also something that the sacred feminine has brought to me. So if all of life is sacred, then I've got to figure out, you know, be, be able to shift my position, be able to shift my viewpoint and see that there's something sacred at play here, even if it's not the way that I might approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, right. That's uh that's such a beautiful frame, I'll call it, or context hmm. for life. Um, and such a, a gift to be in communion with that. I'm sure for you it is for me too. It 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 doesn't explain all the weird things that are going on right now, but it is a a frame that allows me to be myself in the in the presence of all that's going on and know that I have something to bring, that I have um that I've been blessed and that I have gifts to give and that, um, that we're on some sort of a holy path, uh, that I, I, I don't always understand. In fact, I almost never understand it, but that's, I don't understand electricity yet. I can turn on the lights. You know, I don't understand, (laughs) um, how my computer is, how I'm able to talk to you, how this is, this is happening through this little machine that we're both looking at or the microphone in front of you, but I know it all comes from the earth. I know it's all um, miraculous. I know that we, um, we have a, uh, an opportunity to, as, as the feminine does, uh, accept, embrace, uh, and deeply um, affirm what is showing up that in a way that we can um, be of use, be, uh, I don't know, there, there's such a, I'm so glad I'm a woman. I just was thinking, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the, and the men have been so um, burdened with so much responsibility, yeah. accountability, really uh, quite heavy, you know, there, this bird of humanity metaphor did, did do you know that? Yes. That, Can you speak to that from the Baha'i faith? Yeah. Do you mind describing that? I loved that so much. I love, I love this because it doesn't make anybody wrong or it just really sort of helps us all accept the, the roles that we've been playing. So there's a prophecy. It's a Baha'i prophecy uh, from centuries ago. And it's also been adopted by the Cherokees. Uh, and I thought it came from the Cherokee people, but it comes from the Baha'i people. Um And they say the bird of humanity has two great wings, a male wing and a female wing. And that the male wing of the bird of humanity has been extended for centuries, fully, fully extended. But the female wing of the bird of humanity has not yet fully extended itself, is not yet fully expressed and has been sort of folded in. While the male wing has been fully expressed and in order to keep the bird of humanity afloat, has become uh, highly developed, muscular, overdeveloped actually, uh, and in, in fact has has become even violent to keep the humanity bird of humanity afloat. And so the bird of humanity has been flying in circles for hundreds of years with only one wing fully expressed. And that it the prophecy says in the twenty first century, which is now the female wing, the feminine wing of the bird of humanity in all of us, in men and women both, will fully extend itself 
and begin to express itself fully, which will allow the male wing of the bird of humanity to relax and not be so violent. And then the bird of humanity for the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the 21st century, the bird of humanity will begin to soar. Mm. And I, I love that prophecy because it doesn't make men wrong and women right. It doesn't make, it, it, it almost acknowledges the burden that we put uh, all of us on the on the masculine to deliver, to produce, to hunt, to conquer, to dominate, you know. And it's of course it's gotten out of control. We've all been a party party to that. And the women um, uh, of the world, you know, we can see ourselves as victims, yes, but is that powerful? I don't think so. We can see ourselves as complicit and now needing to really step out of the shadows into the light and bring our light and shine it on everything, everyone, particularly uh, tone down the patriarchy in ourselves mm -hmm. and in the culture that we've all been responsible for creating. So I feel very grateful for that prophecy because it takes the sting and the make wrong and the blame out of some of what, um, you know, what we sometimes find is the, is the rhetoric around the divine feminine, the sacred feminine, and the dysfunctional masculine. There's dysfunctional feminine too. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we gossip, we backbite, we, uh, we, we form cliques. We, you know, there's the whole mean girl thing. That's, that's really the ugly underbelly of the feminine that we, uh, we need to own and take responsibility for and transform, you know? So there's so much to learn from this time that we're living in because so much is called for and we are in it, in my view, I'll just say it's my view, but I think it's really happening. We're in an evolutionary leap and <clears throat> in, in an evolutionary leap in any kind of growth spurt, there's pain and it's appropriate. It's, um, it's like having a baby, you know, yeah. pain pushes until vision pulls as we say, uh, as Michael Beckwith says, and, and it's painful being alive right now. It's painful seeing the dissolution of so many institutions. It's painful uh, seeing people die of COVID and uh, the war in Ukraine. And, you know, there's so many things to be uh, upset about. It's painful to watch our just democracy just, you know, under threat, under attack. At the same time, it's necessary passage probably. Um, uh, to have the transformation that that we're now uh, in the midst of 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 having happen, and um, you know, my heart goes out to all that suffer. Uh, at the same time, if we look at it in a much larger frame, we can see that something very epic is going on, uh, and that it's powerful and it's important, and that we will we're going to get through it. Ultimately, yes. we'll get through it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so many thoughts there. Uh, yeah. And I, you were speaking earlier too. I was thinking, I know you, um, you write towards the end of your book, living committed life. You talk about the, the butterfly and the caterpillar, um, the, you know, that process of transformation from caterpillar to, to butterfly and how probably many of you listeners have heard this, you know, the, the idea that the caterpillar literally has to dissolve and then, um, 
you know, there's these imaginal selves that have to seek each other and find each other. And I, I feel that, you know, when you wrote that, I'm like, oh gosh, that is the time we're in, isn't it? And it's messy and murky. Like I would imagine, you know, if we, if we say that we are those imaginal selves, like, right. And we're kind of fumbling around in the dark of what used to work and we're trying to find each other and we don't know. And we're throwing this at the wall and say, is that going to work? Are you, are you my mother? Can I find this piece? Can I find that piece? It's just a, it's a messy time. Mm-hmm. And I've I've kind of been leaning into that thought for myself and the way that I parent and um, the way that I show up in the world of like, it's a messy time. We, and we chose to be here because I think that's true. I think we chose to be here at a particularly transformative and messy time where it's yeah. not um, completely clear. And so part of the process is kind of bumping around, right. uh, <laughs> trying it, seeing if it's going to work. Ah, no, that didn't work. Or, oh no, this is still influenced by something that's kind of negative and toxic that I want to let go of, but I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to keep bumping around and seeing if I can find the other imaginal cells so we can figure this out together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's confusing. It's chaotic, but chaos is really important to creativity and generativity. Um, you know, it's my, I have a, a, one of my kids is a, is a very, very fine artist and he's a, you know, kind of rural renowned puppeteer actually. And he, mm. he, uh, I noticed how his, his uh, capacity to be in the presence of chaos is different than mine. Um, and you think of a lot of great artists, uh, they're, they 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 thrive in chaos and they make order out of it but yeah. they thrive in chaos and it's almost like we're in the we're discovering a new art form of what does it mean to be human now and it, it it's taking our creative juices your program what you work on that you're calling it the sacred feminine um you know that's a creative niche that you've created for yourself i i heard when you were introducing this that you're podcast is is up there in the you know the ranks of of one of the the top ones and i i I, i'm sure that that this um taking on this topic and uh, interviewing people about it you you're discovering all kinds of different things that don't necessarily have everything fall into a perfect place but 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 almost stir up the pot anyway yeah which is really healthy and i i think if we if we just know that that is part of what's going on and it's, there's a a much larger story being told than the one we're telling ourselves. Um, And that's a, that's a solace. That's a tonic. That's a, um, that's a healing balm when you really allow yourself to surrender to evolution, to, um, to, to the mother, you know, the, you know, climate crisis is, is, is horrendously terrifying. It's just horrendous. It's huge. And it's feedback. It's really powerful feedback from our mother, from our mother. And she knows, she knows we're off track. She knows this species here. We got a lot of species on this planet. This one, the human species, I need to give them some serious feedback. I need to give them a pandemic. So they slow down and go inside and think and reflect. I need to give them huge feedback about what they're doing to my rivers, to my blood, what they're doing to my forests, what they're doing to my my environment. And um, if we look at it that way, then we have power, we have agency, 
we have a capacity to turn the tide rather than complain or be frightened or be victims of it. Yes, it's challenging and people are getting hurt and uh, and economies are going bankrupt and businesses are closing and yeah. people are dying. Yes, I know. I, I don't mean to... I don't mean to understate that. And at the same time, if you look at your own life, your own growth periods, your own um, moments where you've realized something that was really profound happened, not in the sunshine, not when you were playing on the playground as a child, not when things were rosy and perfect. It's when something really was hugely challenging. Yeah. That's when we grow. That's when we learn. And we're in a big growth spurt right now. Yeah. Well, and I have a question for you too around, um, you know, so you've, you've dedicated your life to working on some really challenging things, right? Ending world hunger, protecting the rainforest. Um, and I think you acknowledge in your book that you, you probably not going to live to see like the change that you'd like to see. And so I wonder, um, do you attach to outcome? How does the outcome, like, do you need to see the outcome to, cause I think that's something that people stumble on sometimes when they, they look at something and they're like, this is insurmountable. This is too big. I can't even start. And so I wonder how you dance with that question of, of outcome and knowing that our actions are contributing. Um, well, that's a beautiful question, actually. Thank you. I don't think anybody's ever asked me quite that way. So thank you for that. I, um, a stand is it, when you take a stand with your life, it is that you're living your life in the direction of something you stand for, but you'll never get credit for it. And it's something you can't check off or accomplish. It's not, doesn't have that dynamic. Um, and you know that. So that's part of it. Then, so I'm going to say something that sounds contrary, but it's a kind of a paradox. To, to strengthen and deepen and affirm your stand, you, you acknowledge and celebrate when you take territory. Let me put it that way. So that you 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 can see that you're moving the if I use a football field uh, analogy you're moving the ball down the field yeah um, and then then there's setbacks and penalties and stuff and then you move the ball on the field again mm -hmm. or you're you're moving the dial so you you want to keep feeding yourself um, uh, interim accomplishments so that you can stay the course. So for example, with ending world hunger, I don't know that that'll happen in my lifetime, but I know that we're on the trajectory to end world hunger. When we started the hunger project, there were 4.3 billion people on earth and the deaths from hunger and starvation, mostly children under five, were 44,000 a day on a planet of 4.3 billion people, 44,000 children, mostly children under five, we're dying every single day of hunger and starvation, malnutrition. Today, we have 8 billion people, not almost, well, almost twice as many people on earth. And the deaths are down from 44,000 a day to 16,000 
a day. This is on average. It's still way too many. Yeah. But 8 billion people, 16,000 a day. This is like a miracle. Yes. And, you know, I want it to be zero. Yes. Uh, but that's important information for me as a, as a person working to end world hunger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that bolsters my, my resolve, that deepens my determination. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important. But another phrase that's, that's, that's been memorable for me, and I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone wise said, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't need to take credit. Mm. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't need to take credit, when you don't seek to take mm-hmm. credit. So it's not attached to you that this, if it does or doesn't happen, you failed or you've won. Um, so it's not about your identity, about your victory. It's really about getting the getting the job done. Yes. And then there's a beautiful quote that I won't get right by, um, God, it's probably by Rumi. No, it's Rilke. Um, the spirit only wants that there be flying. Who does it is of no consequence, just that it happens. Mm. Uh, it's That's not yes. quite right. I, I wish I could find the, the perfect quote, but it's, it's something like that. It's so, so beautiful. I'm going to look at, see if I can... Uh, look it up here because it's so um well, it's so beautiful. here it is here, let me understand it better yeah spirit wants only that there be flying as for who happens to do it in that he has only a passing interest <laughs> Rilke. Mm-hmm. yeah so i love uh, cataloging my accomplishments and what my achievements i do that at the end of every day rather than what i didn't get done what i did get done so I'm, I'm, this is kind of a paradox in answer to your question. At the same time, I know that in my lifetime, the things that I stand for, um, I can never check off. So one of my stands is to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm not going to be able to check that off. But I'm, I, I am living standing for that that expression that fulfillment of the human family um and there's tremendous progress in that direction tremendous progress in that direction mm-hmm. so that's kind of the the twofold answer to your beautiful question thank you mm-hmm. i love that and i keep having this visual i i tend to i've said this on the show before i can't translate what i see onto paper i am not a visual artist that i get it down but i see I often think in pictures and what I think of when you were talking about, you know, what, how you just beautifully expressed like this stand that you have. And then like having a stand, it's like, I'm imagining like a river, um, like a sacred river of energy perhaps. And that, um, it's the river that's calling to us perhaps, or the river that we're already a part of, or we're standing next to it. And then, you know, when we make those commitments, we're like stepping into it or we're acknowledging that we're a part of it. Maybe you already know you're a part of it and you just sort of surrender and flow. And then, and then there's others that are in that river with you and like that you're carrying that sacred river on and that sacred river is carrying you on. And that's so much bigger than this one life, right? Like it will, it will just keep going and going and going. 
Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. That's a, a, an act of trust. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. Trusting the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have one last quick question for you. Cause I know you're on a, a time frame here, but it's, it feels like an important one that I really wanted to ask you. And, um, with this idea of the feminine and uh, Sophia century and this beautiful analogy you gave with the Baha'i faith in the bird, part of this to me is recognizing, um, again, if we go back to all of life is sacred, then me, I am sacred. And this body that I've been given is sacred. And so this aspect of self-care is really important, I think, and knowing our boundaries and knowing our limitations. And I'm wondering, and I feel like you kind of write about this in your book, like how that dances with this broader stand and making a, a commitment, because so often we're still in this patriarchal stew, right? And a lot of times that idea of making a stand and making a commitment it can come through in this way of, um, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we prioritize burnout. We clap people on the back for it. Look at you. You worked so hard. You got exhausted. So I wonder again, I'm imagining a dance here, but I wonder how that dance has been for you and how you dance with that, um, those energies. Yeah. Well, I, um, two things I'll say, first of all, um, if you see yourself as the life you've been given, and your job is to now give it. Uh, you want to make sure that you realize you're an instrument of something larger than your own life. And you need to care for this instrument, this, yeah. this vehicle you've been given. That's one way of looking at it. There's a phrase in the book that I use uh, called drink as you pour. Drink as you pour. Make sure you're included. Um, and I have a commitment. This comes from Buckminster Fuller to create a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out. That's a stand. Now that's a big stand, <laughs> but that create a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out includes me. Yeah. It's me. Uh, and then another way of answering your question is that I don't seek balance exactly, which is what many people uh, struggle with. I seek integrity and integrity is that I keep my word. If I give my word, I will, I could be counted on to keep it. It's not that I don't fail from time to time for showing up on time or, you know, but, but that's who I am is, 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 is in many ways, my word. I think this is true of pretty much everybody in one way or another. Um, so if my integrity is intact, I feel in communion with who I am. And I think burnout is actually a function of being disconnected from source yeah. rather than it's working too hard or working too long. When you're in touch with source, you have almost infinite energy and source will guide you to lay yourself down here and replenish uh, and stop there because that's not yours to do anymore. That belongs to others. So I'm giving you three or four answers that don't actually always fit together, but those are the answers that have guided me in my life. I love that. And I loved that, um, that reflection on burnout being a reflection of, of being disconnected from source that that was a, a gut punch to me in the best possible way. So thank you for that. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Lynn, I could keep talking to you, but um, I thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been such an honor to be in conversation with you. Mm, thank you so much.
And I love talking to you too. And good luck with everything and have a fabulous new year. Mm, thank you so much. Um, and so Lynn's latest book is Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. I will put links um, in the show notes to all the different ways you can learn more about her, her work and her books. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, I'm so grateful for you. And if you like the show, you can leave it a five-star review. You can tell your friends about it. You can subscribe. <clears throat> you can do all those things. And until next time, take very good care of yourself. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon. 